What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we have a very special podcast for you guys. We are interviewing Rolo Tomasi, who is considered by many to be the founder of The Red Pill. And this is per a lot of the requests that we got from you guys because we talked about The Red Pill in the past. Now, I should say that we don't agree with everything that Rolo says and, in fact, didn't get to talk about everything because there was a lot of it. But there's also areas in which we agree, and you can see all of that in our conversation with him, which is coming up right now. One thing that I should say, if you guys have feedback for me as a conversationalist on a podcast, I still very much feel like I am learning this art. I've got it down with Ben, <laughs> but you'll see there's areas I don't quite know when to interject, when not to interject. So if you guys have feedback, I'd love to hear it in the comments. Enough said. Here we go. Here's the conversation with Rolo Tomasi. Awesome. Rolo, thank you so much for having or having us for being with us yeah. today. <laughs> I screwed it up in the first minute. That's all right. I'll have you. You have me, whatever. <laughs> so uh, the, I think the, the best place to start, we have an audience where we've talked about the red pill in the past. It's been a popular topic amongst our audience. But before we get into it, because I, I, we've, we've talked about your writing and I saw that you made a response yesterday. I think the best mm -hmm. way to start would be to, as you understand them, what are the the tenets of red pill as you see them? Because I do think that there's probably people beyond you that I might be responding to that don't represent your views. Right, right, right. Well, uh, I think you have to, first you have to take into, uh, into account that the red pill is a very broad um, set of, uh, a, a lot of, it's a broad field of study, let's just say. So like to get, for me to give you sort of an elevator pitch for the red pill is like really difficult because it's something that's been sort of coalescing, I think, for the last 20 years or thereabouts, 18 years. Um, that began with the early pickup artists of the early uh, you know, 2000s. And then from there, um, the ideas that were generated from that um, became what we really call the red pill right now, uh, as far as intersexual dynamics is concerned. Uh, when I refer to the red pill, I only refer to it in terms of intersexual dynamics. A lot of people from like say 2014, 2015 on will use the term red pill as sort of a loose brand. 
So it's whatever, like the red pill is just whatever truth is, man. You know, it's like, it's, it's whatever their ideological pet, you know, pet ideology is. So people will use it for, uh, you know, politics or religion or whatever. And, and essentially uh, it, it started out as being sort of about intersexual dynamics and understanding the, uh, well, mating strategies for sure. Um, and uh, just sort of the nature, the innate evolved nature of men and women um, and how we interact and how that, uh, how that kind of branches off into other things like, uh, like social issues, uh, political issues, um, religious issues, uh, how we deal with each other as men and women. And so a lot of people want to sort of force fit their ideologies into uh, what the red pill is showing guys right now. And at no other time in history could the red pill be what it is today because we now have, because of the internet, because of the rise of social media, because of the rise of, uh, you know, I've got a, a cell phone here and I, can, I have access to uh, all the world's information, uh, accurate or inaccurate on my, on my cell phone. To, to have the red pill actually exist anytime before 2000, you would have to go to libraries. You'd have to have such an intense interest in so many different fields to come to the conclusions or to come to the, the theory or the practice of what we call the red pill today. It would have been impossible to do it without the internet. I want to just step back because I'm going to guess that sure. half our audience or more might not have ever heard of the rational male or the red pill. Mm -hmm. So the one sentence is basically it's, it's around a discussion of the interactions between men and women, right? More or less, more or less. Um, and then how those we went deep in, like, here's what it is. And it's internet. It's like, for people yeah. who have never heard of this stuff before, this is gonna be a discussion around how men and women interact. And I'll take in a the crack. US. And, and well, right? well, the world as well. But because what you're saying is that there are evolved differences, because women have ovaries, men have sperm, it's, pl it's plentiful and cheap, biologically speaking, to do that kind of stuff. And that trickles down to decision making in so many different areas of life and all different sorts of organizations that that humans have. So what one of the things that you have written is that the sexual mating strategies of men and women are, I believe, fundamentally at odds with one another. Um, and so, adversarial. okay, adversarial. And mm -hmm. the reason for that being that men, uh, according to you, and I would like to talk the specifics of this a little bit later, but just for for now, are biologically best served to have a bunch of babies by a bunch of different women. And if you subscribe to the idea of the selfish gene, that the gene is really which is what's promulgating itself throughout time, uh, mm -hmm. that's what's best for the genes. It's just a lot of babies everywhere. And maybe you're not the best dad, but sheer volume, many of them will survive into future generations versus a woman needs both strong genes for man who is healthy and strong and capable of being good leader, but also protection in those vulnerable periods of being pregnant and then early childhood because she cannot just go around and impregnate a bunch of other people. She's got mm -hmm. a limited number of opportunities and that has a, a cascading effect into our biology and our decision-making all these kinds of things. So with these adversarial strategies, um, you've then started to say that we're in a gynocentric age, which for people means that it's, it's, it favors the sexual mating strategy of women. And I was wondering if you could, uh, talk about what specifically clues you in or that you say that makes it a gynocentric age and what that could be contrasted with that might have, I don't even know what the other word is than gynocentric, whatever, male-centric or male-strategy-centric. 
Yeah, patriarchal is what you're, what you're, what, it's just an easier term anyways. Um, I think patriarchy is probably one of the most misunderstood terms right now. It's been demonized for a very long time uh, because we live, you, I, I don't know how old you guys are, but you're clearly younger than me. So as long as I've been alive, we have been living in a gynocentric social order or what has become a gynocentric social order. Uh, I, in, in my work and in my books um, and in my blog, uh, I always peg the rise of gynocentrism right around 1965, because that's right when we had hormonal birth control was introduced and hormonal birth control, which is unilat well, unilaterally controlled by women right now. But a lot of guys are saying, well, what about you know, male, the male pill or something like that? That's still like in development. So let's just, I mean, it's not widely available just yet, but um in 1965 or thereabouts, I, I usually, you know, I'm using round numbers here. So uh, 1965 up to uh, 2020, we have had a, uh, a, a paradigm shift in uh, gender relations. I don't think that that's any, any, you know, surprise to anybody else. But what I don't think people fully appreciate is that at the time that hormonal birth control was uh, delivered to women, uh, unilaterally to women. That is when you see uh, the rise of single motherhood. That's when you see the rise of uh, no-fault divorce, uh, child support laws, the Duluth model of feminism comes out of that. Um, I, I'm, I'm only throwing out like the legislative and the political side of things. There's also the interpersonal things and the, what, what we believe as well. Like I said, the red pill's multi- dimensional here. But when I talk about a gynocentric social order, we don't even really, we don't even really understand it because we've lived in it for so long. You've lived in it. I've lived in it for the last 50, 55 years. Um, so, so, so what would it look like? We, or what did it look like? What would it or could it look like that would be a more patriarchal order? What sort of uh, conventions okay. would we have or policies would we have sure. around birth control, that sort of stuff? Okay. Well, prior, okay. So what you said before, you have to understand the mating, the innate mating strategies of men and women. There's, there's a behavioral side of this as well. There's like sort of the cultural and what buffers those things, but left to our own devices, men's innate mating strategy is what was, I believe, I hope I get this right. It's R selected. Okay. Have a lot of sex, have a lot of babies, spread the seed because with every ejaculation you can potentially impregnate thousands of women, right? So it's this spreading of the seed uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, that was what benefited men the most because they wanted to propagate their, their genes, okay? For women, it's the opposite way around because women are the incubators. So women are the vulnerable sex. They're the ones that if they get knocked up, they are at a, at a state of vulnerability that lasts for a very long time. So if they are, they have to gestate a child for nine months, they have to then give birth to that child and hopefully not die in childbirth. Now I'm, I'm rewinding the clock all the way back to, you know, you know, when we were living in hunter gatherer tribes here in sub-Saharan Africa or wherever. Um, so from that particular, from, from those biological realities, women are the vulnerable sex. They have to have protection. They have to have provision. It's what I call the three P's. So it is uh, protection, provisioning, and parental investment. Those are the, those are the three P's of uh, women's ha have a dualistic nature. I'm sure you've already um, mentioned hypergamy on your, your show a few times here. So women are trying to find that balance, that quality balance of the guy who is the, the best uh, genetic uh, benefit, who provides the best genetic benefits versus the guy who provides the best survival benefits. So you've got uh, alpha beta bucks, alpha seed, beta need. 
So the alpha side of everything is I want the hot guy. I want the guy that looked has, uh, what was it? The, the uh, 666, right? I want the guy who has a six pack, six foot tall and has a six figure income. That's, that's pretty much that one side of the arousal factor of the alpha seed side of hypergamy is something that women are looking for. They want to find a guy who looks hot. They want the guy with the, the, uh, the masculine features, the jawline. Uh, we can talk about ovulatory shift later, but there's, a, there's aspects of that show that women go into sort of an estrus period uh, during their menstrual cycle where they are more attracted to guys who, have, who display more masculine features. Okay, so that's one side of hypergamy. The other side, of course, is the provisioning, the beta buck side, the are you going to stick around? Are you, um, you know, do you have protection? Can you protect me? Can you provide for me and the baby? Uh, and so those are choices. And in our ancestral past, if women made bad choices, that could be a death sentence to them. So women are, had to be very what's called case selected. They had to look for the, the, the mate that was going to invest in them and invest in their, uh, their benefits and protect them basically because they were the vulnerable sex. So um, one of the things that I was curious about, and, and I want to get into this later, but I think you're doing a great job of laying out sort of the, the foundational mm-hmm. points. Uh, one of the things that I've read and heard and have kind of seen is that men also uh, – We're never left to our own devices, and I understand what you mean by that, but the idea that being in a tribe, most men minus the chief would have to also be case selective about who they sleep with because it also could mean death. So I'm I'm wondering if there's a potential for a dualistic mating strategy in men as well because I don't see in the world, uh, (laughs) even amongst men who could, that – spread it everywhere constantly all the time because, there seems to be okay, limiting so factors here, so and, and i understand what you're saying i and i i got ahead i got ahead of myself here a little bit but when when we're talking about men uh men's mating imperatives which is unlimited access to unlimited sexuality that does not mean every guy can do that that is not in no way does that mean that any every guy can go go and do that but every guy if that if that were no if there's no barriers to that if that was unlimited if there actually was unlimited access that's what they would opt for rather than opt for what a woman's mating strategy is which is let i i have to be very selective i got to be very case selective so but we say okay well what about monogamy what about this well i would say this is that not every guy can do that uh, we can get into issues of the pareto principle here which is the sort of the 80 20 rule um you know 80 percent, 85 percent of guys are going to be what we call beta males uh the 15 to 20 percent of guys are going to be more alpha males these are the guys who can actually explore that um, what you're saying uh, is really interesting here because I, uh, I'm going to quote a book here called, uh, what's called Promiscuity by um, uh, Tim Burkhead. Really great uh, Evo, Evo Bio guy who, um, who talks about like basically promiscuity in the animal kingdom. Okay. Human beings and primates and, uh, as well, um, if, a, if a particular animal is monogamous, it's usually because of either a choice or by necessity. So um, true monogamy in the animal kingdom is actually very, very rare. Human beings are monogamous because it benefits us. Uh, it benefits our children. It benefits like uh, you know, a man and a woman raising a child benefits the race. It benefits the species when we do that. So we are promiscuous by nature, but we are monogamous or we, we tend to be monogamous by behavior by by society by the thing by the rules that we make so it's not that it's not that guys uh are just out there you know wantonly spreading the seed all the time or that's what they would do i would argue this though is one of the reasons why uh online streaming 4k 
free pornography is so uh, endemic today is exactly because men's mating strategy is unlimited access to unlimited sexuality. Every time we get a new technology, the first thing we do is we repurpose it in some way for pornography, whether that's photography, that's art, that's the internet, uh, you know, VHS, whatever it is, anything that, that can be turned towards, uh, towards uh, sexual use will be turned. That's just simply the nature of both men and women, really. But that's where we go with those things. And so when we, ha when we talk about, uh, you know, no fap or sperm or semen retention or all the stuff that's really kind of popular right now where guys are talking, the reason why we're even having those conversations is because men's innate nature is unlimited access to unlimited sexuality. If we can get it, we will. Not every guy can. So you've got, what, 68%, 78 or 70% of, you know, evangelical Christian men are saying that they have an addiction to pornography. Well, why would that be? Aren't you supposed to be, you know, monogamous? And that's since if that's our nature, it's not our nature. We are promiscuous by nature, but we are monogamous by our behavior, by our buffers, by the way that we live at, within tribes. Because there's certain things that we had to learn along the way that promoted sort of our our, our tribalistic nature. Our first tribe is our family. So it's a, yeah. So I just wanted, so I think I just to preempt, cause I think there's areas where we disagree, but it really might be semantic. Um, mm -hmm. You seem to use innate and nature to have what appears to me to be a sort of an ideal, um, an idea of, of what biology confers upon people upon their birth and then mm -hmm. society as being almost separate from nature. And the way th that I conceive of nature is, uh, the whole kit and caboodle, meaning that, you know, we do we do have to come out into a world which is a natural world and then we have to organize society so as to survive in that natural world so that um, mm -hmm. it seems that nature, even even in your understanding of it, if even if nature, according to you, might predispose men towards unlimited sexuality, what I would consider nature all, throws all these buffers on that such that in practice, that's not what we see. And also the same could be said of the strategy that you would say is natural to women is buffered, controlled on all edges by practical concerns of sure. living in the real the world. Sure. And we do that today still to this day, mostly for men, though, I would say uh, something changed right around 1965 when we were uh, when we realized we could have sex and not have to worry so much about pregnancy anymore. So we could enjoy the act and we could have a casual sex. Casual sex is only a thing that has come about. I mean, the way we consider it has come about since 1965 since the time we had hormonal birth control. So we, you and I, and everyone you know, probably listening to this at some, has had some sort of experience with the idea of, uh, I'm gonna have multiple partners until I find the one. And then when I find the one, then I'm gonna settle down and make my love legitimate with this one. And then we're gonna have, you know, have babies and, and settle down happily ever after. That didn't happen quite as well. I mean, it did happen, but not quite as much as it did after 1965. So we, we live in a gynocentric social order, but we, we don't, we don't even really consider it. it's like, you know, the fish doesn't know it's wet. We don't know anything different because we were raised in this, this condition. Sure. So I, I want to make sure I don't mischaracterize anything. So I'm going to just say what I think you would agree with. And then let <laughs> me know if it's off in any way. And then I have a follow up for it. But the idea of the gynocentric society we have today and the alpha bucks or alpha fucks, beta bucks is the idea that uh, a woman, the society is set up so that women can hook up with whoever they want when they're young, hook up with whoever they want with birth control. So they can even hook up with uh, betas that they don't want their seed and not get pregnant. And then they can kind of choose who to get pregnant from. And also they, as they age, 
can go from being more promiscuous to less promiscuous and try to lock down resources. And that makes mm -hmm. it society benefits women because it allows that because of birth control and societal pressure. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. Uh, more or less. Now, the the only thing I would disagree with is you said set up. OK, it, it, I would I would argue that the gynocentric social order that we have is sort of the natural. Um, uh, it's it's the logical extension of what happened once we were allowed a, a the luxury of being able to have sex without having to worry about pregnancy. Well, that's my, that's actually my uh, question kind of leads into that is. It seems like another way you could view it is that it's an alpha centric society. And so I'd be curious. It is if now. Yeah. So, for instance, like that sets up men to be able to sleep with whoever they want, where women, it would sound like, are much more accepting of casual sex than they would have been in a world with no condoms, no birth control. They're like, I can't sleep with you for a night if you're going to bail, at least unless I have resources. So it seems right. like it's I, I see an argument where you're like, oh, it's better now. Women have more freedom. Uh, but I think there can be a tendency in the red pill to see that as victimizing men. And I feel like it might victimize some men, but it seems like it also greatly benefits someone who can capture the attention and affection of a lot of women. And then not have to. So, so let's, let's, uh, let, again, let's, let's rewind the clock a little bit. Let's go to prior to the sexual revolution because the sexual revolution was you want to talk about the natural outcrop and the natural flow or the the logical conclusion of hormonal birth control was the free love the hippies and everything that came after that summer of love 1968 right um and the uh the boomer generation that came after that but this sexual revolution is what has sort of defined gynocentrism from let's just say well 68 right all the way up to 2020 right now so but prior to that what happened before that um, I'll, I'll get, I'll just give you a quick illustration. My, um, I, I, I was talking to my mother-in-law one time. She's about 75 years old right now. And she told me that when the, um, when was it, uh, sperm banks first came out, people were appalled back in, in the, in the 50 you know, fertility clinics and, and stuff like that. She, they were appalled because at that time, prior to the sexual revolution, if a woman had a child out of wedlock, that was that brought shame on the family. It wasn't just a religious thing. It was a, it would bring shame on the family to the point where they have to take that girl, put her away. That's what they called it. We put her away and she would have the baby and she'd either put it up for adoption or the grandparents would would raise the child so that there wouldn't be any kind of shame brought on the family. And then we're talking about like white middle class, you know, up, you know, upper, upper middle class uh, people that were doing, you know, stuff like this. Not to say that there weren't any, you know, illegitimate children. In fact, even the word illegitimate children is something that is sort of a pre or a, a prior to the sexual revolution. We would say this child is illegitimate because he doesn't have a father after the sexual revolution after women's empowerment we say well progressively more and more and more women don't need the beta buck side because they can make their own money they don't have need a man to have a family because they have support they've got uh like i said sperm banks and freezer eggs and all that good stuff the beta buck side of hypergamy is not is is sublimated so all that's left is the alpha fucks side of hypergamy now so that's why you see things like only fans that's why you see things like where women are saying you know i make my own damn money i don't you know what is it a a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle that kind of you know glory Stein, gloria steinem era where they're trying to create this society of strong independent women well what does that mean independent of what independent of men independent of men's protection provisioning and parental investment 
That's why 42% of childbirths in the United States are out of wedlock right now. That would be outrageous prior to the prior to the sexual revolution. But now we see it as, oh, it must be men's fault. It must be their fault that uh, that's the reason why. Uh, why is it that 70% of women um, initiate divorces? Well, it must be men's fault for that. So what you're saying here is the opposite side of this is, is you're, Sorry, sorry, sorry. So even just right there, it sounds mm -hmm. like and you do this uh, to treat men and women as monoliths doesn't work because the same there's there's still a lot of sexual success that is being had by men. Right. Oh, yeah. It's just mm -hmm. it's what you're saying is that it's shrunk to the guy who gets someone pregnant, isn't there, gets another woman pregnant, isn't there, gets another. And now he's got three, four kids that he's not taking care of. And maybe later in his life, he settles down. So I guess just even to point back to Ben's point, I'm curious what you think is that. If, if the same amount of babies are being had, the same amount of sexual success is being had amongst men. It's mm -hmm. just that it's favoring a different cohort of men, which we would describe, at least in this the top twenty percent as, as yeah, alpha men. Well, it, sounds, for, uh, it sounds kind of exciting to me if I'm a young man, if I'm 18, because it sounds like, OK, you don't really have to worry about becoming a resource bank for a woman who can't have a job. What you should focus on is being the kind of guy who is there's genuine chemistry and there's a desirous like I want to sleep with that guy because I want to sleep with him, not because mm -hmm. I want to get access to his money. So if I'm 18, it's almost like, oh, I don't I'm not a piggy bank anymore. Now all I have to do is focus on being the kind of person that people genuinely want to sleep with. And this is going to work out great for me. Yeah, for for the most part. Now, remember, um, I, and you asked me this before, is it doesn't it work out great for guys? Yeah, it does for the top 20 percent of guys, for the guys that women are with uh, in the manosphere. We have this saying what's uh, um, women would rather um, would rather share an alpha than to be saddled with a faithful beta right now. You got to look like the rock and get paid like the rock, right? You I mean, you got to you gotta have the whole, the whole package. Women will say that you got to be the whole package. The problem is, is that women today don't look for the whole package. They look for the whole package over the course of time. So when they're in their peak sexual market value years, such as like 22 to 24 years old, they're looking for something different than when they get to be 31, 30 years old right there. It's kind of like one of the things I like to do is build bridges between fringe ideas and where people are starting, like what frame they're starting mm -hmm. in. And I think a lot of times people can come across certain ideas from the red pill or the manosphere that seem misogynistic. And so someone mm -hmm. might be listening to this being like, well, that sounds misogynistic, but isn't that true? What you're saying is that over time, a woman's dating priorities will change from 22 to 30. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. I think mm -hmm. that makes a ton of sense. I think that's also probably true of men as well, right? And so it's not necessarily, and correct me if you disagree, but it's not necessarily about picking on women and saying, oh, women are bad because at 22, they do one thing and they'll sleep with you and have crazy sex. But then at 29, they're different. It's kind of like people's sexual goals and desires and strategies change as they age for two reasons. One, their hormones change and two, society treats them very differently. But isn't that true of men as well? Yeah, uh, what you're what you're doing here, though, is and, and yes, I, I would agree. Um, I do think that there is uh, and people have asked me this just recently, actually. Um, don't you think that men want to have children? Don't you think that they want to have kids? Yes, I, I do. Because if they didn't, they would not have um, we would not be uh, wouldn't have behaviors like mate guarding. We wouldn't get jealous if that weren't the case. Um, one of the, I think one of the big tragedies of gynocentrism is that we have downplayed and completely debased and are trying to erase men's paternal interests. The reason you get jealous, the reason you get suspicious, the reason you think she's cheating on you and you want to go root through her phone to, to, to see what's going on, the reason for that is very evolutionary, okay? The guys who got jealous, the guys who got pissed off, the guys who killed the rivals, 
that the that their women folk were going to get with those guys passed their genes on to the next who also were jealous who also got suspicious who also had developed sort of this peripheral awareness of the behaviors of the women that they were with so yes there is a vested interest in men's paternity and that would not exist if men didn't have some need to have their own kids and to know that those kids are their kids i kind of want to summarize where we've been and then ask uh, a bit of a question so what I'm hearing from a broad level is this this technology enters in the mid 1960s. And as technology does, it changes it changes the social changes order. The world. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the big things I, I want to get to this at the end, because I feel like it is it is uh, an amalgamation. Women can now I mean, not just with uh, not just with controlling uh, whether or not you're going to get pregnant, but also with tampons and the ability to work in the workforce. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's all of these things pushing towards uh, consumerism and self-sufficiency and the increasing atomization of the world. No longer do you need a tribe, you just need a family. And now longer, you don't even need mm-hmm. a family. You just need you just need yourself and a bunch of contracted workers from Postmates and, and you're going to be A-OK. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question with this is, uh, one of the things that perhaps I project onto the red pill when I read it is that there's frustration. And that might be because you mentioned earlier, you're talking to guys who are 45 to 65 oftentimes. And Mm -hmm. the issue is not that the world is this way. The issue is that they thought that the world was a different way, prepared for the world to be a different way, and then came out the losing and came out the losing end of a world that had shifted and they did not get the memo. So is that is it just and then I want to elaborate, is it safe to say that none of this is wrong or a problem in and of itself? What you might say is wrong or the problem is that that people aren't uh, aware of the, the the different ways that people are behaving now or what is possible. Well, I, um, I tried not to, in, in all this, I, I, I've said this before, is that the, the red pill is a praxology. It's not an ideology. So I don't try to, I don't like deal in what should be or what ought to be. I, I usually just deal in what is. And so like a lot of guys will say, well, don't you think hypergamy is evil? I'm like, mm, well, yeah, if you're on the sharp end of it, <laughs> if you're the guy who's, who's on the losing end of hypergamy, then I, I guess it can certainly seem that way. Is there frustration? Yes. There's frustration in the sense that guys, uh, if for the last almost four and going on five generations of men are still mired in old order thinking. They still think that the old social contract is what they is how they should behave because it worked for their dads or it worked for, you know, people before them. And then that's what they should do to, um, to best facilitate what I call uh, solving their reproductive problems. Uh, one of the questions that I have about all of this, so the world changes, you know, uh, this comes in, who benefits? We've talked about how it seems like alpha men, and I don't just mean evolutionarily speaking. I mean emotionally speaking, because one of the things that I believe you've talked about is that you believe that men and women are better together. You believe mm-hmm. that, um, and when I see and I speak to women and men and people who get the things that they think that they want, they are psychologically not always better for it. So, you know, the fact that they might have made a ton of money on OnlyFans or the guy who just had a jerk-off session on Pornhub and came to, you know, six, like they got what he aimed at. Well, or the guy who slept with five girls in five days, bam, 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 yeah, bam, yeah, bam. Yeah, it's yeah. day six and he's like, well, I don't feel particularly good I don't feel good very good. <laughs> so, so mm-hmm. who are the winners and who are the losers? And I, and I guess I kind of want to propose this idea that 
what is, I think you often go back to the groundwork of, you know, there's this, there's this tension between men and women, which creates a lot of the social structures. And I, it mm -hmm. seems to me that one that might've even overtaken that in the last hundred years is consumerism. Um, that mm -hmm. is, that is pushed. Okay. So women, and I'm curious what you think, you know, women get birth control, they get the ability to go to work on their period. And of course, what is the whole social messaging? We every, you know, dual income household, everybody's got to be out there, spend your money, go get an OnlyFans and buy a bunch of stuff. And it seems like who's let what wins is this entity of the economy and what loses is people's psychological well-being the girl on OnlyFans, the guy paying for OnlyFans, the all of that stuff so i'm curious i'm curious your thoughts on that i i think here's okay so here's the other thing and don't take this the wrong way but i i think that we live today in an age of emotionalism and that emotionalism where we prioritize emotion above everything else like you just said uh what about you know their flourishing or their psychological health well what does that mean because if I was to go and ask the American Psychology Association who have said that, you know, uh, traditional, you know, conventional masculinity is a personality disorder, they would say that you and you and me and everybody else who, ha who has some sort of, you know, an ounce of, you know, testosterone in our bloodstream, we have a problem just because we're masculine, because we have a, you know, that's where we're at, right? So what is what is flourishing what is what is psychologically healthy according to what our idea of it should be and how do we come to that idea so when i talked about um how gynocentrism has has sort of become something since 1965 along with that we've been taught what i what i have said in my books as well as is this idea that the female experience is the ideal experience to be more like a woman, like when uh, back in was the 1970s, uh, it was always uh, men need to become more emotionally available. Men need to become more emotional. Men need to express their emotions. Men need to get in touch with their feminine side. Men need to get in touch with their emotions kind of thing, right? So it's this, this amping up of this idea that men need to become more like women or need to at least identify with the female experience. And if you do that, then women will like you. And of course, guys took, took that to heart and they go, well, that's great. If that, is that what I need to do? Because men are basically problem solvers, right? We're deductive problem solvers. I need sex. How do I get sex? I ask a woman what she wants. I become that. I get sex. I have kids, blah, blah, blah. So once when you that, say emotions, do you mean all of them? Happiness, <laughs> sadness, anger? guilt well no no i, I wish i wish uh, i i wish there was a priority of emotions because like women will today will say well men need to uh get in touch with their emotions well what they're really talking about is the emotions that complement whatever it is that woman's experience is so when i say we live in a female correct society right now that's part of that female correct society the way the right way to think in gynocentrism is to think like a woman uh, I think it was, was it Camille, pa I think it was Camille Paglia or somebody, I forget who said this, but it's like we, we raise our, we've raised generations of boys as if they were defective girls. Is it possible that these, they're doing fMRIs on adult men who have been trained throughout their life to experience emotion differently and women who have been trained throughout possibly, their life? To possibly, but the, what's not, the, the, the other part of this is that you, if you look at the studies and you look at the wiring, like the, the neurological wiring, if you look, if you, what's interesting is that if you take a man's brain and his wiring, you place a woman's brain and her wiring on top of it, they are complements to one another. Like for men, it's usually uh, along the longitudinal access for women it's the latitude um so what they're suggesting anyways and again the science is not 100 percent settled on this but um, what they're suggesting is that the things that make up women's natural proclivity like the way that they like to communicate for instance um, when it comes to sub communications for women women communicate differently from men i think you probably have figured this one out 
is that for like women can infer um, communication from from uh, just you know the dirty looks, right? You can, you can be right there in a in a party or something, and and some girl will come by and and she'll leave, and the, your girlfriend will go, "Did you see the dirty look that bitch just gave me?" And you were right there in the party, and you didn't see it happen, but she did. Because their level of communication, understanding subcommunications is different from men's because our brains are wired differently. Now, what women do when it comes to communication is they communicate covertly, whereas men communicate overtly. So when you're looking at, say, women's form of communication, it's usually about how did the communication make them feel? Women will get together just for the sake of talking, just for like when women communicate, they communicate like, like straight up at you. When men communicate, we communicate this way. So when women, when women are, are talking to one another, when women are uh, interacting and talking about their, you know, talking within their own language, it's usually based on the context of the conversation. So the priority is on how did the conversation make them feel for right now, we're men, we're discussing things right now. We're transferring information for men. Our, our innate way of, of communicating is to transfer information and to focus on the content of that conversation. Now we don't go, we might later say, well, how did that make me feel? But the, the reason men come together is to solve a problem, is to, to do a project, to you know, form a hunt, that kind of stuff. Is that it's not so much men, about... Or is that because that? Is that we're men or because we don't really know each other well and we're on a podcast? Because I think back to being no. in a fraternity or hanging out with my closest friends, it's a lot of like what you'd call shooting the shit and just making each other laugh mm -hmm. and saying things that have no bear talking about tattoos you're going to get that you're never going to get. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's outlandish. It's not based on anything but the idea of creating joy in the group. So I'm curious if that's a masculine versus feminine thing or if that well, if this conversation is mostly because it's the first time we've ever spoken. OK, well, I would say this is that the uh, the reason why most guys think that they are not communicating correctly or or guys will say this. I, I'll say this. When's the last time you went you called your buddy up and said, hey, man, let's go get coffee and really connect or let's go get, let's go down to Starbucks and let's just talk about, you know, our feelings or talk, you know, like get together to talk just for the sake of talking. When it comes to men, men do women talk. So when men communicate, they tend to have a project. They tend to have like, let's go fix the car. We have common interests. When men form tribes, it's usually around common interests. So like if you're in a band or if you like to surf and you got your buddies there that like to surf, or you've got guys who want to, uh, who are your, your workout partners or something, you have a project that you're actually working on. And that's where communication takes place between men. So if you're in a fraternity or something like that, maybe you've got some sort of uh, common interest between the two, between all of you guys. For women, it's usually she. Uh, it's the community. The act of communication itself is the, what generates the feels. Is what generates that, uh, which makes a conversation memorable and makes a conversation valuable. So when we talk about gossip, when you're talking about other people, it's it's the emotions that are uh, part of that communication that make that communication something that they want to engage in. For men, it's the information. It's it's let's go do something, and then communication is is shared amongst those guys. But what you're going to say now is this: is that well, I don't do that. I I go and I hang out with my friends, or I'm I'm there for them. Well, the problem is that when you do stuff like that, it's usually because you've been taught that that's what you should do. When you are, uh, I think it was a um, it was in the Boston Globe. There was a a uh, an article in the Boston Globe, and I think it was 2018 where they were talking about men who were uh, 45 to 65 years old, which is the prime cohort for suicide for men. 
And they were saying, why are, why are all these men, like five times as many men are killing themselves as women? And it all com- generally comes from that 45 to 65-year-old co- cohort. Why is that? Well, the Boston Globe went to great detail to say, well, they don't have social networks. They don't have real friends. They don't, they don't communicate. They don't go do these things. They, they isolate themselves and everything else. But what they're, what they're not, the whole article missed is that that's not how men communicate. They don't communicate. like Naturally, they don't communicate like women. They would rather have guys that they go and have something in common with. I'd love to bring this back to the emotion thing for a second, too, because uh, mm-hmm. personally, I in my friend group and maybe we're just outliers. I don't see a lot of people who I would say are being pushed to be more emotional by their women. I actually see a lot of men who are trying to be stoic, who mm-hmm. don't try to have negative emotions. Maybe anger is OK, but sadness never, you know, I myself haven't cried in 20 years. And I think that's from. Uh, software. I don't think that's my firmware. You know, I think that's uh, programming to try to be masculine, to try to impress men or attract women. Mm-hmm. And so I don't personally, I would not have said that society is pushing men to be more emotional. I actually would have said that there is an oppress oppress in the United States, at least for men to hide their emotions. And if you're going to cry, you can cry, but get to your room, like get alone and then cry and then come out when you have a solution to the problem. And I would say that my experience does jive with the fact that if men are committing a lot of suicide at 45, those men probably don't have someone they can talk to about their problems. And so they do feel alone and trapped. And then they try to problem solve and they can't figure out how to make the real world change. And then they just give up and kill themselves. So yeah, and and, and I would agree with you on that, especially on that part right there, because guys don't have those tribes anymore. Like when I'm when I'm talking to guys who, who want like counseling from me, the first thing I say is, do you have tribes? Do you have like, what's your family like? Uh, do you hang out with do you have a group of guys that you hang out with? 90% of them say they don't. And I think that that is that has more to do, I think, with um, sort of this Internet isolation, you know, like behind the screen kind of thing. Like most of the people that these guys know um, that they have any kind of social interaction with are just like, you know, digits on the screen or just like a face on the screen kind of thing. They don't have actually, you know, a, a connection between them. So I, I would agree with, with you on that. I would also I would I would say this is that I, I see this every time we have a mass shooting event with like say Nicholas Cruz or a kid who goes to high, you know, a high school kid who, who goes and bl- you know, blasts his, 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 his high school up. Um, it's usually an emotional outburst. And the first thing that comes out of the media is this, is that, well, society is teaching these guys not to get in touch with their emotions. Society has taught like this nebulous society. It's, it, it's funny to me because again, it's kind of like this old order way of thinking, but it's, it's this idea that like, boys are just taught by these really tough drill sergeants who say, you don't cry and you don't, you know, you don't do these. And that, that era is long gone. And I would say that from, from, you know, from the last four generations, at least men have been taught, get in touch with your emotions, get into, in fact, when we say, is there um, data on that? Cause that's not my experience with my friend group. Well, no, it, maybe it's not your experience with your friend group, but are you fr- <laughs> And again, take this as, as you will, but a lot of guys who are in that, I like who say, well, I was, I was bullied or like, they don't understand how to interact with other guys or they don't understand masculinity. 
They're taught that masculinity is bad or demonized masculinity as saying that it's uh, toxic or that, it, or the, the aspects of masculinity that don't serve a feminine purpose. Those are the aspects that are toxic. Whereas this, the ones that, you know, maybe anger and aggression, those are emotions as well. Those ones are not acceptable, but when we're all loving and, you know, in a drum circle, then those are the ones that are. are oh, I'm, I'm just saying I'm, I'm 33. So that's my generation. Mm-hmm. That's my age. But like my, my friend's dad was military and he was, very tough. Uh, I, I don't. Again, this is, it's tough to find. A, I know. Yeah, it, no, no, it, it does. So it doesn't question, jive with my, my world is, either. My but. question is: Is there data on it? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying my friend group. Yeah. All there is. I'm just saying uh, I would never have posited, based on my life, that tough fathers are gone. Uh, in fact, I don't know any fathers that encourage their sons. Well, I think I, I think what I'm seeing here is um, fundamentally, it sounds like we are obviously we are living in the same world. And I think that the way that you view it is, of course, books that you've read, but also personal experience. And it sounds like you mentioned earlier prior to this, that you came to this by interacting primarily with 45 to 65 year old men who well, had, in the beginning anyways. Yeah. 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 And then that that has formed a thing. I think that we're just talking to different people <laughs> in different yeah, things. Totally and, 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 and maybe the world has moved it. more in one direction or the other. I don't well, know. I, I think is. that I think that in a gynocentric social order, it serves a purpose to cling on to the idea that uh, patriarchy is teaching toxic masculinity to young men. When in fact, for the last four year or four four generations, we've taught our boys as if they are defective girls. 77% of teachers from kindergarten, even to postgraduate school right now, are taught by our, our, our female teachers. Uh, they are teaching classes. They, I, was, I was joking about this the other day when we were talking about, like, uh, why do we have so much communism in, in our schools right now? Because we're, we're, we're having this debate about Antifa and all the stuff that's going on. And why is it so popular that social, why is socialism a thing? Or why is, why is that a popular thing? Well, you have, you've got women who are teaching, you know, underpaid teachers, granted, uh, teaching, you know, kids uh, in schools to be more emotional and to uh, to express those emotions and to uh, teach those those classes boys or girls in a framework that is a feminine framework so you get we have a higher incidence of prescription of uh, ADHD drugs like Ritalin and Adderall for boys than we do for girls because if a boy doesn't want to if a boy wants to be a boy we tell him you're a bad boy in fact we <laughs> there's a there's a meme out right now is that boys will be boys and they cross out the last boys and they say boys will be good humans so what does that tell a guy? What does that tell a little boy? Well, if I'm a boy, I'm not a good human. So I need to learn to be a good human. Teach me to be a good human because I don't want to be a bad human. So when you have that message repeated over and over again, when you look at, um, when you look at even our classic stories like Disney and Pixar kind of stuff, it's, there's, there's nothing for boys anymore. There's nothing that is sort of a, a, a boy's adventure kind of thing. And God forbid we do that because if we do, then it'll be, there'll be protests outside the movie theaters because it doesn't have a strong female lead in it. Except um, for so Onward, we have that was those, just a bad have, movie. <laughs> Onward was yeah. only boys, but it just wasn't very good to watch. Right. Well, and, and so I, what I've said is this, is I, I think that these are old lies. The, the old lies are this, is that, well, the society is teaching boys to repress their emotions, to, to, to tamp it all down. And then that's why, that's why we get toxic masculinity. That's why we get mass shootings, because these boys have been taught that they, it's not okay to cry, that it's not okay to do these things. And that is simply not what, at least from my experience and from what I am, I, I'm reading these days and, and, and every, every new incident of this, of this kind of stuff, 
is it's always an emotional outburst. So when you look at a guy like Nicholas Cruz, the guy, you're, you're talking about a generation of kids, a generation of boys who don't have fathers, first of all. Let's, let's talk about, you want to talk about uh, fatherless homes. There's, there's that aspect of it as well. So you can say, well, you know, my dad was a drill sergeant or whatever. Great. But a vast majority of young men don't have a man or a masculine influence in the home right now. As I said, 42% of births in the United States are out of wedlock. So does that mean there's not a masculine influence? I don't know. I can't speak to every single one. The fact is, is we've systematically removed men and masculinity from this society. So to say that they're getting this influence and it's still this 1950s, uh, you know, uh, tough coach, drill sergeant, you know, don't, boys don't cry, you know, smack you upside the head, bullying kind of thing. I think what's happened is the, at least the last two generations of men, of young men, don't know how to interact with other men because for a very long time they've been taught that their gender is bad their gender is to, to gender loathe <laughs> totally i don't know what it's like to be 14 i have no idea I'm, i can only speak to being 33 and interacting with men from age 25 to 40 you know so if you're telling me that's what's happening at 12 year olds i have no idea well let me let me ask you that so you're at, at 30 at 30 let's just say 33 what do you see 33 um at 33 years old um if somebody asked you, what does it mean to be masculine? Like, what would you say? Would you know what to say? I, yeah, I, have, I, think, <laughs> it's I think it's trained. I honestly think it's learned from society. It's, to be masculine is to be, it's to be strong. It's to be able to protect the people around you. It's to be aggressive. It's to be uh, tall and muscular. It's to be wealthy and financially successful. It's to be ambitious. It's Stoic, to be leader. Right? It's to not show emotion. Um, so it's to be someone that when you uh, run up against a problem, you run through that wall, you don't quit, you are persistent. Um, that's, that's the, Persistence. that's the first thing that kind of comes through mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have a similar thing and, and well, I'm, I'm curious, I presume you're going somewhere with that. So one of the yeah, well, I'm asking that because there's, there's a lot of uh, sort of, I won't say counter movements to the red pill, but there's a lot of, of guys, like if you go and you look at uh, organizations like the good man project, there's another one called, are we man enough or something? And the reason I was asking that is because a lot of guys can't answer that or they will make it subjective or it's confusing or it's, they'll say, I don't know what it means to be a man. I, I can't live up to those standards. I can't live like that. I'm, I, it's all just social constructionism. There's no actual, there's no actual uh, biological, you know, factors that make a man a man and a woman a woman kind of thing. And that's how you get, blank, well, that's an extension of blank slate equalism, but it's also a, sort of a denial of human nature. So I'm not saying if, my answer is right. I'm just saying that's what I've been taught or grown up in. <laughs> yeah, well, see, you're, you're you're saying that it's a lot of the a lot of the aspects and a lot of the qualities you just rattled off there. Um, you're saying are social construction, right? Like, well, it, you know, that's just what society says we're supposed to be, and not what we really are. How much of those aspects are something that are innate to you as a human male on planet earth and how many of those are things that or maybe they were modified by social like by the, the nature is modified by the nurture yeah yeah well, i don't think it would be possible for me to know right yeah this is i, I feel like when i was back. born and now i'm 33 my point is this is that is that we um we tend to subjectivize masculinity right now uh, my third book is called Positive Masculinity, and I get into this in there, is that what we've done is we've, I, I, you'll never hear me refer to masculinity as traditional masculinity. Traditional masculinity is specific to a culture or an ethnicity or whatever. So my, my idea of what should be traditionally masculine might differ from yours or from black persons, from Chinese, whatever. 
but I, in, in that book, I outlined the, the aspects of conventional masculinity. And so I'll refer to it as conventional, meaning that there are aspects of your body, of the way that your, your brain is, is wired, uh, the, the, you know, the hormones that are in your body, your, the ability for you to make more muscle or to grow a beard, those kinds of things. Those are parts of, your, of the biology that makes, you, that makes you a man. And from there, that from there you can modify those things as as you see fit but right now we tell boys that it's bad to be a boy it's bad to be these things it's bad to be uh, don't you don't want to be toxically masculine you don't want to overstep your bounds you don't want to take you don't want to assume any kind of responsibility or excuse me or assume any kind of authority you want to expect <laughs> please take more and more responsibility well it's interesting but, to think about too because like let's say that someone can't grow a beard. Let's say that someone has a small penis. Hey, dude, let's say someone take it easy. <laughs> no, and let's say and let's say that they're <laughs> successful in the ways that matter to them. Are they less masculine? Do they care that they're less masculine? Should they care? You know, and let's say let's say that they hear all this and they go, you know what? I really don't care if you think I'm masculine or not. I'm five four. I can't grow a beard, but I'm happier than you. Is that not the most alpha mindset they could possibly have? So I guess that's kind of my questions around masculine mm. and feminine. Is like how much does it matter how masculine you are? And is the question really just, is what you're doing working for you? And are you happy? And if you don't like the mm -hmm. results you're getting, then let's diagnose it. And maybe it's because based on what you want, you would get better results if you acted more masculine without an inherent, well, without any inherent value to. Well, you're, you're also, you're, you're qualifying it by the, the end state goal is, am I happy, right? Again, an emotion. But am I am I happy about the way I am? Am I happy the way that? And there's a lot of people who are very happy about what what it is they're doing. It's when they express that and say that this should be the norm and you will be happy because of this is where I got to draw the line. So when you know uh, when when it's like drag queen story hour at the library, it's like oh it makes the kids happy. You know they're they're happy. Should, it's, is that something that's constructive to, to society? Is that going to be for the benefit of society? I don't know. I'm not going to make a judgment call about that. But yeah, and I think when you, we talk, you would agree. When we make, you have to balance the short-term happiness with long-term happiness, especially right, right. children. So, you're, so it's you, like but, what you're doing, you're trying to make a fulfilled human. You're not necessarily trying to make the happiest five-year-old on Thursday. Okay. Okay, so here's 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 where I'm gonna I'm, I'm, I, I will uh, sort of upset the apple cart a little bit. Is I I'm of the uh, I'm of the opinion that there's no such thing as contentment. Okay. There's no, there's no state of human contentment that, and God, now I'm getting, now I'm going to get really philosophic. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in this, I'm in this mindset because I'm, I'm writing book four right now, which is uh, on red pill and religion. But so there's no such thing as contentment. There's a uh, human, the human experience, whether you're male or female is, is varying degrees of discontent. And that's a good thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's how you deal with that discontent that makes something bad or, or good. So when you get a, when you go, man, I, I, I got to get my doctorate or it's going to take me eight years and you get to that doctorate and you think, oh man, now I'm going to be content. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be a fulfilled individual. And then you realize that that degree requires you to, you know, work with people you didn't like, or you get into a situation that you didn't, you didn't realize that you believed that drive, that your discontent is driving you to something to, to be something more than you really are. Okay. So to say that, well, I'll be a fulfilled person that to me anyways, that implies contentment. And I would say this is that there are, there's no such thing as 100% total contentment. You, you won't find that idealized state. I totally agree. There's no, there's definitely no such thing as 365, 24, seven contentment. I would, I yeah. would say even the Dalai Lama would agree uh, where we yeah. might disagree. And also where we might just be being semantic is I think there is, there's um, fluctuation between being content and being discontent. And there's also, mm -hmm. I think periods of your life where it's very healthy to take the areas you're discontent and use them as fuel, right? To get from 
poverty to a place where you're more financially stable, to get to a place where men don't respect you and you're uh, struggling and dating to the point of being very unhappy and use that as fuel. Instead of becoming hateful towards women and other men, you push yourself forward to become better. And I think that's mm -hmm. great. And then I also think there's phases where you've done that for a decade and you would benefit from not focusing on discontentment as fuel, but looking for inspiration or looking for more equanimity. Uh, so that's my philosophy, which I don't think it, it may be different than yours, but it's certainly not of the I'm not of the mindset that uh, if you're not happy 24 seven, then something's gone awry in life. I think no, life but, has but, but what I'm saying is that you make if you make contentment your goal state, you're always going to be you're still going to be discontent because at some point you're going to have even if you got the the degree you get to you've, you've achieved, so you've got to the top of the mountain. Now you're going to say, well, where's the next thing? Uh, where, where's the next highest mountain? Where's the next thing that I can do? And that that, that discontent right there is what drives us. Is what, and I'm I'm talking about things in a in a global sense right now. That's what drives humankind onto something that's beyond itself. What's that book? The Two Mountains. Yes. So no, that was exactly what I was thinking. So have, uh, you, have you heard of this book? It, it's a metaphor. I don't even know what the book is. Um, but he essentially says, and this is where I feel in my life. I've never been religious. I've never been spiritual. And I Ben and I have spent the last. 13 years, very much <laughs> discontent, solve a problem, mm -hmm. get a result. And mm -hmm. I think you, I'm sure you have in your life, you know, we, we've been lucky with the YouTube channel. I was convinced at a hundred thousand subs, things will be different, <laughs> you know, like, and I, it wasn't even a, a stated what goal. A it wasn't even a stated goal, right? It was just, uh -huh. it was just a goal. And then I hit it and you know, nothing changes. Oh, they must, the number must've been a million, you know? And, and what mm -hmm. I have seen is exactly what you described is that the hedonic treadmill keeps on going. Now, I have been looking for a third way other than destructive and con constructive, and I'm a novice in it. I just started taking psychedelics, but it seems to me that there may be some sort of third way, which is what spiritual people have talked about for a long time, which is to sit with the contentment or to uh, is or to have a paradigm that that looks down on it from a different level, such that it's not this by such that it's not change something in the world, but rather change the way that you relate to it internally. And I, I, one of the mistakes that I think that I've made in the past is advising people who are too young or haven't yet gone done that, that world thing, you know, like make a big impact in the world and play that game. Um, but personally where I feel that I'm at is less interested in, um, being driven by discontent to make changes in my life because I can't even believe that it's going to make me happy anymore. <laughs> I, I, I can't even convince myself that more business success will make me happy because I've just I've I've just seen that it doesn't. And so I'm on a I don't have the answer, but I feel like I'm trying to find a third one. And maybe I'll come to the answer that there isn't a third path. It's just oh, very. And then, and then what, what happens is it, and 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 I get this is sort of like the. This is kind of like the Buddhist kind of Hindu kind of thing where it's like you're just looking for that nirvana state. You're looking for that state of like total just being right. The total state of being. And I, I, I understand why guys want that. But I would say that again, coming back to what we are as sort of like human animals and and our you know our base our our base materials like what is like it's it's like do we have a soul or do we have a are are we all just like you know uh, smart monkeys on on planet Earth right now, and I would say that the reason why people are innately unhappy or try at least I mean you can be happy for a while I'm not saying you can't find contentment for you know temporarily but I'm saying it's the the discontent is what helped us survive in the past. So we had to be discontent, like, oh, my God, the saber tooth tiger killed off my tribe. But I better sharpen a stick and see what I can do, because that's I'm discontent with that. So it's those, that discontentment is what is, it's I think it's endemic to the human experience. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like 
where what lens you view things from. Because for instance, Jordan, so I, I dated non-monogamously for about a decade and Jordan Peterson likes enforced monogamy. And so I was like, ah, I must hate what he's going to say. And then I listened to it and he said, it's better for society. And I went, you know what? That's actually totally fair. If everybody did what I did, this would be a disaster. And so similarly, maybe for the human race, it's better to be fueled by discontent because it pushes you forward to have SpaceX and Neuralink. But also on a personal level, if I could suffer from depression while creating the next SpaceX, or I could live a life where I help people by doing something that I care about and be happy, I would choose the latter. And so I'm less, for myself, I'm like, how do I be a good person? How do I make a positive impact? But also how do I focus on more than just society at the expense of my mental health? And mm -hmm. does it, do you think that that is the feminized world order that has infected his thinking at that point because he cares about the emotion of being happy or? Well, I, I would say this is that the reason why you, you, you prioritize the word happy or prioritize the feeling of it, because remember, happiness is an emotion. I can make you feel, but we can go get drunk and I'll make you really happy right now. Well, we can go take, you're taking, I don't know what you're, oh, let's psychedelic. Well, yeah. Like yeah, suddenly I've achieved <laughs> happiness and contentment. Wow. Yeah. So I can, I can take those emotions and I can make you feel them. What if, what if I could do this? What if I could give you an SSRI and you'd feel happy all the time and you can live in abject poverty, but you're happy about it. I'd take, great thing? I'd take great. it. I'd love yeah. it. I'm, you say you would take I'm it. Blue so pill, man. Like, I'm matrix blue pill, dude. That steak tastes good. And I'm in the matrix <laughs> and the real world is like, so you'd rather have just the sensations <laughs> of it. rather than, So it doesn't matter what the actual source of it or what, you know what, what the, I'd real, take that the back, quality of the happiness. I'm is a truth about. pursuer. I take it back. I'd, no, I'd go red you. pill, but, that's, no, but the, that's not me. The, uh, the problem with the SSRI to me, isn't that it makes you happy and is easy. It's that it has downstream effects. It's that it yeah, has it does. And, and I'm not saying that, but I'm, let's let's just say idealistically, you could yeah. have a pill that would make that would give you complete happiness. Would you take that? Would you take that pill? Yeah. If it meant yeah. like you just and it, and it completely eliminated your drive to to uh, you know seek out solutions for any kind of discontent, because you wouldn't have any you wouldn't have any discontent. Well, the presumption I have to think morally about because I do. Yeah. I, I don't know if you even know this, but we have another YouTube channel called Charisma on Command, and it's geared towards mm -hmm. helping people, and so. Mm -hmm. I would have to think about the moral, because I believe in the veil of ignorance, which is to say, uh, if you didn't know who you were in society, how would you want yourself to operate? And I do think that to unplug when you're doing good, that's not how you would want people to operate if you liked the advice from Charisma on Command. But certainly if you told me, listen, this the amount of good you were going to do is going to get done. Like, I don't know how, but this pill is just going to operate your business for you in a way where it'll still help people your own life is the only thing that'll be affected, but you'll no longer have to chop wood. You'll just take the pill. I would take the happy pill. I will. Can I, I think I've seen the philosophical thing, which is the question is what is more real, the external material world or the internal experience of it? And, and, and kind of in, in what you're suggesting that, well, but you're not going to go out into the world is that there's something less. I had no idea we were going to get into this conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this could all be a simulation. <laughs> this, this whole world might be. Well, fake. no, I it actually, could be a simulation. I, I think as there we've talked, no real world. as we have talked, I've, I've heard. I, it's funny, if, if we start from the same presuppositions about nature, you and I come to all the same conclusions. And I think, it, weirdly enough, and we don't have to get to it because it's been an enjoyable conversation nonetheless, um, it's almost like we have the same, we would make the same decisions, but the fundamental, like what is more real, the internal subjective experience or the external? And that's why I tend towards... I don't care if I'm alpha. I don't care if I'm a cuck. I don't care if I'm in abject poverty, suffering, and other people look at me and go, poor guy. If my internal experience is consistently, and not just in a moment of heroin opiate, uh, happy, it seems 
and I'm not I'm not 100 on this. My hypothesis is that I would be foolish to toss that away uh, in order to achieve according to a well, societal standard. You, we used to say so. Like I said, I did the non-monogamy thing, and Charlie said if there was a hypnotist that could make you, you would be monogamous and happy. Would you do it? And I was like, no. Because at the time, I actually was so strongly in my identity to be counterculture in that part of my life. And I was like, no, was like, no, because there's no hypnotist strong enough and I wouldn't be happy. And he's like, no, you would. It would just fix it. You'd be happy. You'd have one girl. And I was like, no, I had like a cognitive dissonance and I couldn't accept it. And I, that was probably five years ago. And I, over the course of, I guess, going from 28 to 33, and uh, I've had a change of heart such that I would right. take that hypnotism yeah, now there's a there's a chronological thing that's going on with actually both of you right now um because like right now you're saying well i'd be happy if i was this or i i can be a cuck i could be that whatever that, that yeah at, at the age that you're at right now the problem is is that the the the, the way that you're thinking like ideologically or whatever the way that you think now affects how you're going to be in the future so if you're saying, well, I'm, I'm okay with that. Well, there's going to be constant. Again, it's like cause and effect. It's like, well, the consequences of the way you think right now are going to affect what your future outcome is. Uh, I, I, I mentioned this in book four as well as uh, we're, we're at a time right now where ideology is going to set the course of like evolution. We're already seeing this right now. If, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like the CRISPR experiments that are in China right now where they're doing like gene editing and we can literally, we're getting to the point, if we're not there already, we're getting to the point where we can genetically modify a human being to maybe feel bliss all the time or to whatever. Uh, we can choose eye color, we can choose hair color, we can choose like all these things. Is there a gay gene? Oh, is it? Is it a defect or is it, uh, is it a feature or is it a bug? If it's a bug, shouldn't we... Uh, you know, edit the gay gene out. Like, so it's like your ideological perspective of what you think at the, at this point, at 2020, right? I don't know how old you are, but how, you know, at this point in this point in your life, what you believe right now, if you could say, well, I'm going to engineer things so that this is, because this is what I believe is right, ideologically believe is right right now. And it's going to have, you know, a cascading effect into the future because I made that decision right then and there. Well, so what I'm saying, so this is why, I, so the reason, the problem with the SSRI is it doesn't last forever, right? The good thing about the magic pill is that it lasts forever. <laughs> so there is no future me that's unhappy because of it. The decision would so inherently always, make so me happy always, till the day I died. So you're always stuck in that one. Hey, the other thing I, I think is this is, and you asked me about this is like uh, the happiness side of things. I think we focus too much on this sustainability of happiness. I think it's okay to feel bad sometimes. In fact, sometimes it's the it's that it's that feeling bad. It's a, not to remain in it and wallow in it, but using that sort of negative kind of energy, like the when we get depressed or whatever. We you you want to talk about some of the greatest art in history created by guys who are clinically depressed. Sure, I'd rather um, not create so, that art. Than I'd rather not be clinically depressed. But I think I heard that, um, I do I, agree that you can't be happy all the time, and I, I think everyone from the Dalai Lama on down would agree. Even the people who pursue uh, Eastern philosophical enlightenment would say, yeah, you're not going to be happy all the time. So I completely agree. But I don't want to be well, the artist that is you don't be Van Gogh. Yeah, but makes great art. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was going to say, I think it was Henry Rollins said something like this. If you had a, if you had a story or had a movie about a guy who had this perfect life, he had a perfect wife. Uh, they never, ne nothing ever bad happened to him. And his kids were great, well-adjusted kids. And he had, you know, a golden retriever in the yard or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Would you go see that movie or would you go see the movie about the guy who's just like, you know, hammered flat by life and is just like, you know, you know, coming up from adversity and has a really 
at life and he comes and becomes something else or he's he's driving he's the, there's something that's sort of like the joker right there's you want to know why the joker is such a hot movie is because that's where we are i think collectively particularly for for young males right now that's where we're at that that discontent is palpable at this point so which movie you're going to see you see the guy with the perfect life or the guy or the Joker? Which one are you going to, which one has the bigger draw? I would watch the Joker and I would advocate that all young men pursue decisions that are going to make them the movie that no one wants to watch and that no one aspire to be the Joker. And I would go watch the Joker when it was fictional and in a movie theater for sure. Mm -hmm. What would you do? Would you, I mean, so, and I think that's the thing. What is more interesting for me to, well, a train wreck is fun to watch. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I get rubberneck when I drive by car accidents because I'm not interested in the car that's driving perfectly well next to me. So you'd ask mm. Ben, what do you value truth or happiness? I presume that I value truth. I would value truth over happiness. So you'd rather be the Joker I, in that. In uh, well, well, maybe the Joker's not right, but no, no, it's, it was the, I'm just, no, I, I'm I, just I, reversing I think, the I, question. I think, yeah. Well, I think that the Joker, something like something like the Joker. Why did I use that? <laughs> something like the Joker. Um, I think it is. It is. It relates a human experience, whereas you know the perfect life guy is. It's not believable. It's not something that people really want to like say that that's even possible for them. Because even if it was, even if it was like I said, tr uh, would you rather be happy or would you rather be right? Sure. Well, which would you um, choose to live, the Joker or the guy? Who's to happy live? With the happy I, I said, which one kids. would I want to watch? <laughs> exactly. So, um, me. Well, I, the reason why I said that is because which one do, do human do do people find more entertaining? You know, do they find the guy who has has the perfect life more entertaining? Yeah, I do not I strive am, to be entertaining for other people. That is not my. Yeah. Mission. Well, I and that's I. I have a real problem. You want to talk talk about things that I have a problem with in the red pill, uh, in and where it's going right now is I think there is a focus on entertainment more than there is on actual uh, tools and knowledge and, you know, actionable information right now. That's what I tried. To, I had a, um, I had a show not too long ago, about like three or four months ago called red meat for the red pill, because right now, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to come on here and talk with you guys is because uh, when I was listening to the two episodes you guys did about the red pill, I'm like, okay, these guys need to be set straight, right? You guys need to have, that was a fan that? question. So it was unfortunate. Uh, there's a, there's a clip we have called the, a mistake with the red pill and it's mm -hmm. a response to a fan question. And we didn't include the question. And I, and because of that, subsequently, <laughs> we always show the question because uh -huh. I think that unfortunately people didn't realize we were responding to someone asking about texting specifically and not responding. And then that's how we responded. And people were like, that's not red pill. And we're like, I know that um, I just was answering a fan question because that's a segment we do. So, and right. then I saw your response and I was like, okay, it's all good. I think we agree on more things than we disagree well, about. We'll just figure it out. Um, yeah, I was going to say is that I, I am, I, I, since the rise of YouTube and, and sort of this YouTube sort of funnel marketing kind of thing, uh, there's a lot of guys who come out and they've got a, a you know, an ebook of 47 pages they sell on Gumroad and they'll teach you how to be red pill, right? Um, what they do is they play to the lowest common denominator. Uh, as I said before, the, the commiseration, this kind of gets back to the, you know, happier or, or informed kind of thing. Um, the guys that they are appealing to, uh, this generation of red, I don't even want to call them red pill because a lot of them are what, what they would call themselves black pill or doomers or uh, the more extreme end of MGTOW. Uh, it just sort of give up. Don't, don't, you know, don't bother with any, uh, the only winning move is to not play the game. And uh, I, I disagree with that because I think you can, you can deal with discontent creatively and you should deal, deal with it creatively. Um, 
and again, I think, I, I think men and women are better together than we are apart. And we have been systematically driving men and women apart as much as possible because there's a lot of red meat in doing that. And there's a lot of money and commodification in doing that. And I, it has certainly hit the, uh, hit the MGTOW community right around 2018. And it's all red meat, meaning look, 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 here's here. Look, look what she did. It, uh, you know, look what he did. Look, here's a cuck. Here's a, here's a gold digger. Here's whatever. And if you go and you look at those videos, those are the ones that have the highest viewership. They're the ones that, those are the accounts that go from like zero subs to like 150,000 subs within like three months because they're, they're feeding that red meat need. And it's all, it's like TMZ, right? I mean, it's like, it's like, it's uh, the car crash analogy again. It's like, it's like watching something that, that feeds your, um, your emotional need for indignation. Um, those kinds of things. And they're doing it in such a way that it's appealing to men. It's easy to do it with women because women thrive on indignation. I think this generation of guys are now thriving on generation are on indignation as well in a very similar fashion. They're just doing it from their side of things. So whenever there's a story that comes up that shows uh, that proves like how evil or how horrible women are or how horrible beta male men are or these simps or cucks or whatever, those end up going crazy big. And then what happens is people go, that's the red pill. That's the whole, that, is that the red pill? That's the red pill. It's like, no, that's not the red pill. I've been in it for 20 years and I can tell you right now that that is marketing is what that is. I actually wanted to ask you this. Um, so I wrote this down. What's the thing you think gets most misunderstood? Because I know there's definitely things. So you you represent mm -hmm. yourself. You don't even represent the red pill. What are things where they're like, oh, Rolo says, and then they mischaracterize oh, yeah. you? Oh, okay. Okay. But there's actually, I, I wrote that one down actually. Um mischaracterizes is different from overlooked. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, the mischaracterize the, the, the number one thing that gets mischaracterized is hypergamy because people think, and I, I as many times I can write a hundred essays about this. I can do a hundred videos about this and I will still get this back at, thrown back at me, um, which is hypergamy is a straight jacket. Uh, it, it means that if I, if I get with, I, I'm not going to bother. I'm going to justify my existence as a MGTOW or monk mode or black pill or doomer or whatever. I'm going to justify my loserness because the game is rigged and the game is rigged is called hypergamy. And Rolo even said hypergamy, right? And that's something I've talked about for a very long time. In fact, I, I have for the last almost 20 years, I've tried, I've done my best to broaden the definition of hypergamy. Well, what happens is that ends up being red meat for these guys who are like, I'm a loser. How do I Got feel it. better? So you're saying right? don't well, they don't feel better about themselves, but it's hypergamy. They think is a straight jacket in that uh, if I get with a woman and I invest in a woman, it's only, uh, she's never mine. It's only my turn. And while that's a good rule of thumb, it's not always true. It's, there's a lot of other variables. So when a woman is 23, hypergamy is something that is quite different for her than when she is say 33. You know, what does she, they were again, the priority switching. So, but guys think that it's just like, they're doomed. Hypergamy, I'm doomed, I'm doomed, I'm doomed. And, and they love that and they eat it up. But it's, it's, it's not a straitjacket because, you know, it also depends on what that woman's sexual market value is. What does she think of herself? Uh, is she on social media? Uh, what's your value? Her value is going to decay in time. Yours should, if you're living up to your potential, should increase in time. For women, hypergamy does not seek its own level. It's not looking for, if, if a woman is a, is a six, she's not looking for another six. She's looking for a guy who's a seven. From an evolutionary perspective, that makes the most sense, the most pragmatic way to do it. She's looking for something that is above that. That's what we call an, uh, an attraction floor. 
So her attraction floor is a six. I need a guy who is comparatively a six or above. And if the guy's a six, she's looking for a seven. If she can get an, a seven or an eight or a nine, then so much the better. And she has to change her behavior to maintain that that sort of uh, sexual market value ratio kind of imbalance kind of thing. What of everything you just said would apply specifically to women and not to men in the sense that do you think that a man who's a six wouldn't like a seven and that if they had a seven, they would like an eight and a nine. And so Mm -hmm. can you kind of help me understand in what Mm -hmm. ways this female strategy differs from exactly what I see sometimes, which is a guy who isn't particularly ambitious or successful or smart, also isn't particularly focused on physical attractiveness, isn't particularly skilled in hobbies, but does think that they deserve their dream girl. Okay. So, so what you, so you're, okay. So here the, again, this is sort of this equal and opposite reaction. Okay. What I'm talking about here is I'm, I'm talking, I'll, I'll get to your question, but like to get there, I have to, uh, to define this for you is that for women, they do not have an attract or uh, for men uh, as uh, Charlie was saying is that uh, they don't have a um, men don't have an attraction floor. So guys will be like, nobody's ugly after 2 a.m. Again, unlimited access to unlimited sexuality. Uh, this, is, this is completely, this is one I strongly disagree with. I don't, I know one guy like this. They call him SEAL Team Six yeah, because yeah. he comes in at the end of the night. And if you're talking to a girl, he's going to talk to the friend. No, my experience is every other friend goes girl, home. Yeah, if I'm talking to a pretty girl and she has a friend and I ask a friend to please come help, talk to this girl, sleep with her, more often than not by a large majority, they'll just be like, nah. <laughs> I'm going to go on my own. And I'll try go. To find well, someone. I'll be on even go try and find someone. I will go home and play video games. I will I will opt out. So so I this is something that when I read, I was like, I do not see this play out in my own life that I, I think a lot of people say no more often than they say yes and sleep alone all the time. So how does that connect? Okay, let me let me let me let me ask you this. If you had sex with those girls, would you get pregnant and have a survival issue if by getting pregnant? No, 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 no. Because I would you're feel male, guilty. Right? I would feel guilty for not wanting exactly, to see them again. Exactly. So when or we look at women's in the encounter and well, when we look at women's biological imperatives, they have to pick the best of the best. In fact, hypergamy can't afford not to pick the best of the best. That's why women rely on their friends for social proof and preselection, because it can't afford not to get with a guy who they think is the best. That's why the existential fear for, I remember I told you the existential fear for men was uh, paternity, right? To get cuckolded. For women, it is to breed with an alpha male, or excuse me, to breed with a beta male who she thought was alpha, who got around that hypergamous filter, who tricked her well enough to get her into bed and to possibly impregnate her. And you want to know, you want to know why, why it is that women will kick you in the nuts and we laugh at it or they'll, they'll, uh, if you're man spreading, they'll go and pour like, you know, water or bleach on your nuts. It's because it's attacking. This is the thing. This this never happens. Well, (laughs) but here's the thing is the the attack, it doesn't have to necessarily be that. It's the attack on male. Have you ever had a woman say the first thing? That guy's got a small dick. Yeah. The woman hates you. You got a small dick. Why is that the go-to insult? Because what it's saying is you are not worth breeding with. That's what that means. Is you're not, you're not, you're disqualified because you're a beta male, you're a chump, you're, you're trying to pass. In fact, that's the, the reason why women get pissed off at like beta male guys is because they're trying to, they, it's like a woman discovers that that guy is actually beta male and he's trying to pass him off, have, pass himself off as an alpha self as being like a seven. That means she says, I'm, I'm worthy of at least a seven or he's not good enough. Remember, uh, we talk about leagues, like he's, she's out of your league. The idea of leagues is all tied into hypergamy. He's out of my, he's out of your league or she's out of your league. 
The reason we say that is because she is a seven and you're maybe a six and you're going, oh, okay. Well, and, and again, this is all abstracts here, but let's just say for sake of argument, you're a six, she's a seven. Then you go, okay, she's out of my league. I'm not even going to try. You've just disqualified yourself from the sexual, from, at least from her as a reproductive choice for yourself. I don't necessarily think that's a good idea, but that's the way we tend to think is in terms of leagues, right? For men, we don't have the same reproductive investment costs that women do. So for women, if a woman gets pregnant by a guy who she thought was alpha and eventually turned out beta, that could be a bad, a very bad, bad thing for her for the rest of her life. If she has the kid, you want to know why abortion is, why women will fight tooth and nail for abortion? It's because it's a fail safe against that existential fear. So when a guy uh, gets in there and, and, and suddenly she goes, oh my God, he's actually a beta. I can, I can kill the kid. Oh, okay, the, I'm good. Now I can you know, continue to see if I can find a better guy than that. For men, men don't have that reproductive cost. So a woman who is, you know, if you're a, if you're a six, you're happy to get with a five, maybe a four, but you want to get, you would love to get with, you know, the hottest chick you can get with, right? You want to get with a nine, but in a, in a pinch, if, you're, if, you're, if you are in such a state of scarcity and such a state of, I, I don't have opportunities, like what were we just talking about with the, um, the uh, was it strategic pluralism theory? I got to put all of my eggs in one basket. You want to know why guys become serial monogamists? It's because they think all these girls are out of my league, but this one that is in my league, I'm going to put everything into this girl because she's the, she's the one for me. I got I to gotta, I gotta make her see because if I don't, I'm not going to solve my reproductive problem. So for guys, the mating strategy is what means what women are hypergamous and men are not hypergamous. So like you say, well, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go hit, I wouldn't jump on a grenade for my friend, you know, as, as a wingman or something. Yeah, you might not do that. But for men, sex is like a utility, right? It's like you, it's like taking a, I think Tom Likas said this. He said, it's like taking a piss. You would love to go take a piss at, you know, the Bellagio with gold plated faucets in a, in a, you know, China toilet or whatever. But if you're on the road and, and you really got to go uh, a, a dirty, you know, garage, uh, you know, a dirty garage or a gas station will bathroom will do just as, just as well or Walmart. Right. So it's just that it's the, it's the, the function and the investment in the investment costs in, uh, in searching out for a, searching for a mate. So again, this, this does not track at all with any of my life experience. Um, my concern here, and I know you might not like this, is that this, this to me sounds ideological, how men are and how women are, based on an, a past that, and I like evolutionary psychology. I think it's incredibly informative, but I think it needs bounds and limitations. Um, perhaps, uh, and I think we've, we've been sort of coming around this point for a while, but the way that men are and the way that women are, to me, cannot be... Uh, subtracted out from, of course, individual differences. And I'm not saying we're all blank slates, but there's there's going to be individual genetic things and maybe people are, men are more emotional, et, et cetera. But also the, the upbringing, the 18 years of the way that people are. So to me, what men are when they're born and whatever an fMRI shows of a guy when he's 20 uh, seems to involve so much culture that to say that this is the way that men are, men don't have a floor, when in the world it's like men have they have floors. It's just, it's just like a fact of society as I, as I encounter it and I see it, that they regularly say no to sex uh, for reasons that perhaps were instilled in them, but are still uh, real and binding nonetheless. So it's almost, it seems useless to say that men don't have a floor in some idealized state where there is no culture telling them that they, that they 
that they shouldn't mm-hmm. when, when in fact, let, we, let, we me, let me tell you why that kind of offends your sensibilities here. Okay. Because if your sexual strategy is to put all of your eggs in one basket, to be monogamous, no, but like you brought up, I was not monogamous for 10 years and I definitely had a floor. Okay. So you, yeah, you, well, were, okay, you, you, so. Were, you were not monogamous for your twenties, right? Do you, do you right, think exactly, exactly. Like, do you, do you well, truly like, think that you had no you, floor? So you, you'll tell me that there wasn't one girl who was like the, the one fat girl in your, in your past, the one girl that was like, you know, really wanted to go and you were there and you know, you were drunk. She was cute. And one thing led to another. Is your theory that women don't have outliers as well? I don't think that they have outliers in the same way that men have outliers. Like men, men in, in general, I think that the, the, there's a reason for the idiom, which is, you know, no one's ugly after 2 a.m. Uh, guys will be happy to get what I am. Yeah, there's there's a. OK, so let's just say for sake of argument, you have you're a, you're a six and a girl who's like a four wants to get with you. If you've had four beers in you, you'll probably bang that girl. Right. The reason why this kind of offends a lot of guys sensibilities is because if I say this and you agree to it. Then any potential girl who sees this video or hears you say that is now going to say, well, you know, is that what he's really about? Oh, it's just not because my you're, experience. You're, believing that, you're believing that your quality is, is based on, well, I have standards. Here's a, Did, here's well, a test about can standards. I, can I ask a genuine question? So you were mm-hmm. uh, in a band touring around. You, you called it your rock star 20s, 365 days in a year, 10 years, 3000 women. Did you sleep with 2000 women every other day? Did no. you find, so you could have though, right? No, Absolutely. There's, you there's, could logistic, have. there's logistics involved. Okay. So we have to, we have to look at logistics. Okay. Do, so you can't just go you, say, do you agree that you could have, if you had no floor? I double shifted. Let's just say that. Sure. But, but it's, so uh, if it's not in the thousands, then surely you said no more often than you said yes. Right. Well, it, it was it more about, it wasn't. Okay. So here's the thing is, is it opportunity or is it actually saying no or saying yes? I, there, I, there are several times that I've said, said no. But I said yes more than I said no, put it that way. So are there are there standards? Are there things that you'll do? Like here's the thing: is is it logistics, or is it or is it um, is it a standard? Because I'll tell you right now, if you go on Twitter right now, and we've, I've done this experiment a million times, if you go on Twitter right now, and you you said, ladies, if you really want to get a man, uh, here are six things that you need to do: grow your hair long, stay thin, learn how to cook, do you know, have some standards, right? Just six standards. That that tweet will go viral overnight because men are not allowed to have standards. That's the thing is, is that we've been taught that, well, really since the sexual revolution, but we've been taught that, that we are not allowed to say what we want. You want to know why fat acceptance is a thing right now? It's because men are not allowed to have standards. We're supposed to believe that it's what's on the inside that counts and not what's on the outside that counts. And that because you are male, you should find and it be, you should think that beauty is a social construct rather than actually being something that is biological something that triggers your brain, like a hips to waist ratio or big boobs or a nice ass or whatever, whatever it is you, you're into. But to have those, even to, even to express those standards right now, I'm not allowed to do that as a man because if I do that, then I turn into a misogynist. Then I turn into some, a, a chauvinist or, or a, a typical guy. Women, on the other hand, can say, I want a guy that looks like this. He's got to have a V taper. And, and other girls will just pile on and say, yeah, because only women are allowed to have standards. That's what I'm talking about. That's why women are hypergamous. Men are not, if men can be held in a state where they are not allowed to have standards, then it doesn't matter what you're, if I, whether I say, you know, unlimited access to unlimited sexuality anymore, because you're silenced. We don't want, we don't want to hear from you. Well, I do agree that double standard on, uh, a woman being able to say she wants the 666 club and a guy not being able to say the equivalent, that seems completely unfair and unfounded. Um, that 
is more in regarded to what public speech is allowed. And I, when I see the no floor thing, I see it more in terms of people's actions. And like I said, I loved this one friend I had who had no floor. Mm -hmm. Perfect wingman, loved him. Mm -hmm. I only ever found one. And so it's just not, and again, this is just my experience. I don't know if there's data that says I'm wrong. I don't know if your experience contracts mm -hmm. it, but I don't know many men that when I look at their behavior, they have no floor. Uh, even to the extent that they will get drunk and get beer goggles and they'll hook up with mm -hmm. a woman that they might not have sober. It's more so that they just have a floor that falls as they drink, but still not to the point where anyone was acceptable, regardless of appearance, personality, behavior. Does that make sense? I understand what you're saying. The other, th the other thing I have to throw in here as well is, and don't take this the wrong way, but I mean, you're a good looking guy. Your friends are probably good looking too. How many of the women that were beneath you just simply edited themselves out of that equation because they didn't th they thought you were out of their league. How many women didn't even bother to come on to you and give you the opportunity to turn them down because they turned they they did it for you. They turned themselves down. I guess in a world with no floor, I would assume that when a man was alone at 3 a.m., he would start to pursue every available female, right? If we existed in a world where there was no floor and so it's like, okay, there's no floor, I have a biological imperative, unlimited sex that you, you would expect every man to go down the list of every woman in the bar as time went on, right? And so maybe at well, 11, you I mean, if you had a guy that was, uh, yeah, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're looking at binary extremes here. It's like, will every guy do that? No, but the large amount of guys, remember what we said about the 80-20 rule. So if you got guys who are, who are not in that 20 percentile, they're not getting those opportunities. So when those opportunities arise, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if she's one step below him in sexual market value, he's going to take that shot because he can't afford not to take that shot. For women, and the other, on the other hand, for women, women are always looking, from an evolutionary perspective, they are looking for the guy who's the bigger and better deal. So and is that, it accurate? I mean, that's why it gets misconstrued, but that's, that's the basics of it. Is an accurate summary of the thought, not that there's no floor, but that men, if you live in a world where everyone can get a number, because that just makes this conversation easy, if a man has a number, he will, mm -hmm. and especially with alcohol, go below his number in a way that a woman is unlikely to. So it's not that he has no floor. It's that his floor is below his equal. And for mm -hmm. a woman, you're saying that maybe she'll go one lower depending on the amount of alcohol, but that her floor will be higher than his floor. Because I do, well, I, I can get behind that. It's more the concept I, I of say, no floor. I, I, so I would say this, is, is that because... Option. So now, I again, this is just me spitballing here. So I, what I would say is this, is even with alcohol, there is still the... Uh, you know, when, when we talk about how alcohol makes you lose your inhibitions and stuff and you do things, well, there has to have been a baseline attraction for a woman or arousal, I guess, for a woman to to want to get with that guy. So uh, a lot of guys will say, you know, oh, you got lucky because she's way out of your league and she's she still got with you that that particular night. I'm not saying their outliers don't exist, but I will say this is that by and large, I think that it is uh, part of women's evolved mental firmware to look for at or above their 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 thing whereas my hypothesis men, isn't that women don't and this have is, a and again it goes back to the biological realities of of what we had to deal with in the past so in our ancestral past if a you know if a woman gets with the wrong guy it's a death sentence that's part of it's it's like the same fear of snakes right well if i touch the snake i could die from the snake if i have sex with the wrong guy i could die as well 
So even in the state of, you know, I mean, you'd have to be one of the, I think one of the reasons why we get really upset about the idea that guys might like slip a woman, like, you know, uh, some sort of you know rape drug or something like that is because it removes that, it removes that barrier. It, it makes the choice for her. And, and that's really what rape is all about is it's removing hypergamous choice. Yeah. But we would feel that if I got slipped a drug and I woke up with someone that I didn't want I would feel upset and I would expect and hope that my friends and support system and the police would feel that similarly. Right. Yeah. But so I don't would know. You, that's okay, would, okay. So that, that's actually an interesting question. Like what would you, do you think you would feel the same sense of violation and the same sense of, uh, I don't, I don't know, the same emotional, the negative emotional effect that a woman would feel if she woke up in a similar situation? I, I honestly don't know. Um, Luckily, I would say no. And I would, the only reason I would say no is because there's a part of women's mental firmware that says, oh my God, the choice of hypergamy, the selection, like my sexual selection, whatever was taken away from me. That's really what amounts to rape right now is sex a woman didn't want to have. And we're, we're really kind of, we're inching our way towards, towards pretty much any sex that a woman doesn't want to have is, is called rape. So when we talk about like duty sex for like, you know, Christian women who have sex with their, their husbands because the Bible told them to have sex, they didn't really want to have sex, but the Bible said I should have sex with you. So therefore I'm going to have sex with you. Um, might be starfish, you know, lackluster sex, but I still did it. Um, if the law of the land says that any sex you didn't want to have is rape, well, guess what? You're a victim of marital rape and now uh, we want some money in the divorce settlement. Okay, can I clarify? Because any sex that anyone doesn't want to have in the moment is rape, right? What you're saying is that any sex that isn't driven by uh, lusting behavior, you're, it, it, that's what it's moving towards. Well, enthusiastic, enthu okay, so I, that's not me that's saying this, by the way, well, for, for issue, and I don't know how we got to consent, but um, for issues of consent, we've gone from no means no, way back in the, what, 80 or, or late 90s. Uh, then we got to yes means yes, which happened right around 2013, 2014. Yes means yes was, I have to ask permission for everything that I do. I, I, can I touch you here? Can I kiss you here? Can I do this? Can I do that? And uh, I mean, even Dave Chappelle did some uh, comedy skit about like signing away, you know, signing off on all the things that I get to do to you here in the next half hour kind of thing. Um, that was yes means yes, which was absolutely ludicrous. Um, and so then we get the Me Too movement. And so, the, you know, rape and sexual harassment and sexual assault doesn't have a statute of limitations. It's one of the only crimes that doesn't have a statute of limitations. So we can go like Brett Kavanaugh, uh, we wanna you know, confirm him for the Supreme Court uh, of the United States. Well, you know, when you were 17 and you were at that backyard kegger, you said some things to me that I considered sexual assault. So therefore you're disqualified from, from that. That's what I'm talking that kind of stuff right there. It's not so much the, uh, that, that's the social well, side again, of the And again, thing. for the Brett Kavanaugh the thing, I don't, I don't necessarily think he did or I have no idea, but it wasn't that he said some things. It was that he gang raped a woman was the accusation. So just to be well, clear. That was the accusation. I'm also not saying what did or didn't happen, but it he wasn't, uh, I believe at risk of going to jail, he was at risk at not getting a job, right? So mm -hmm. I'm yeah, just saying, one of the most important jobs in the yeah, yeah. and determine the, the yes. a, a job I'm, that would determine the social state and the political state of the United I'm States. I'm just saying that's not about statute of limitations, actually. So like if every day well, it is, it is when it is when uh, I can go all the way back to well, if, if that's the case, then uh, when I was 10 years old, I pulled some girls' pigtails. Is that sexual assault? Well, she I'm, comes no, I'm forward 40 Kavanaugh, years later and says it. I, listen, I actually think that uh, this is going to make me sound like I have opinions I might not. But if Brett Kavanaugh had been consistently uh, in high school abusing elementary school kids, 
and they wanted to use that as a character defect for not being able to be a Supreme Court justice. It's not about the statute of limitations or the crime. It's about the reflection of the person given the position. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't inherent to, oh, this only happened because it involved a woman and sex. It's just like, no. if this happened, then this is the kind of person you don't want making decisions for the country. And it could have been I, I, And I understand that. But the only thing we heard about was sexual issues. The only thing we heard about mm-hmm. was let's go find some. Let's go dig as far back into his past and find whatever woman is going to, you know, corroborate anything that, are, you know, any suspicions right now. Sure. And why is that? Well, because me too. And it was because of, again, it's the, the rape thing. It's, it's uh, taking away hypergamous control. No, and one of his and, accusers came out and said she made it up. And it seems weird to me that there's no penalty for making that up. So. Yeah, it seems yeah, like you. Well, it seems yeah, like you shouldn't be able to make. Yeah, well, you wanted another example people, of a guy. Now. But also, it seems like you. Sh- it's okay to hold someone's character accountable for what they did in the past. The problem is we don't know. Was that? <laughs> well, no, that one of them said she made it up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that we were holding him accountable for what he did. It's that this woman came out and said, "Oh, he actually didn't do this. I made it up." So I just, another, you want another example of a gynocentric social order? There you go. Well, I, so anyways, getting back to the, the consent thing is, is, and I did not, this is not my term. This is something I've been reading uh, actually since about 2017. It's it called enthusiastic consent. So if a woman is not enthusiastically like tearing your clothes off and want the, the hot monkey sex, the, the lust you guys were just talking about, if a woman is not into it with you enthusiastically, then it becomes the gray area sex. Not my word. These are feminists that are writing this kind of stuff. And it's the sex that I, I had because it was less convenient or it was less inconvenient than actually not having, turning the guy down. So it's sort of, sort of like the mess. I like the duty sex, kind of like, ah, I had sex with him because, you know, I just, I just did. It was, so now we're going to make the standard of, of rape according to how into it that woman was at that particular time and her recollection of it because we don't have a statute of limitations for that. So, and again, it's, it's, it's stuff like that. So, but the basis of this comes back to hypergamy, okay? When you take away hypergamy, when, when you, uh, you, if, if you want to know why uh, women look for, uh, was it a child support when it looks for um, uh, abortion rights, abortion rights is the easiest one to do here because the reason why women uh, need abortion rights or they, they cling to this, uh, they will fight tooth and nail and they'll celebrate it now when it comes into an area like a country or whatever that didn't have it before is because it's a fail safe against making bad reproductive choices. So if she has sex with a guy that she, you know, didn't, doesn't really want to have kids with, there's always that option. Not every woman will, but any woman can, because what it is, is it's taking control. If abortion didn't exist, it is removing hypergamous control away from women, and it's putting it at least in the hands of society, if not other men, whatever. Here's a really good question for you guys. Should a man have a say in whether, in human reproduction right now? This I'm so glad you pointed this to us. So I think, I hope this is a uh, this will help maybe make the conversations more interesting. I think sometimes uh, it sounds like we're being interpreted as disagreeing with what you're saying about females. And what I'm saying is that perhaps it's not about females. So like personally, I wish that I could decide if I got a woman pregnant that she could that she had to have an abortion. I would love that ability. And then I could only have a kid if I consented. And so I think it seems less like women as individuals are a certain way because they want that power and more like everyone who could have that power, who believes that abortion is not the murder of an infant, would take that power and that society 
has just given it to women and not men. So maybe you could say something uh, as a critique of society. You could say, listen, it really only makes sense to have kids if both people sign off on it. But it seems like to posit that that's unique to women is where I have the disagreement, I guess, because I would love a rule that said Ben Altman gets someone pregnant. They can't have the kid unless Ben signs off on it. I'd be like, yeah, let's give me that power. So I don't know that it's inherent to women to want that power so much as just some people want that mm -hmm. power. Does that make sense? And I, th I think I've seen yeah, that kind of well, throughout our conversation. Okay. So if we can. And I understand. We'll I understand what you're like, saying. Because I feel like I we'll say, aren't men like that too? And then you'll say, here's why women are like that. And it's like, well, mm -hmm. we don't necessarily disagree with that part, actually. So mm -hmm. I think it could maybe make the conversation more interesting going forward if we're clearer well, on what you we guys, disagree okay, with so you guys you address what we disagree the, with. Does that make sense? In the beginning, in the beginning, you asked me this. Okay, you, you were saying like, well, don't you think that it, it works both ways? And, and and even like guys want to say, well, isn't hypergamy like it? Shouldn't that be like you know? There, there's always this want to find an equal and opposite reaction, right? It's and well, so I when I say when I say, well, I doesn't see it. well doesn't that work for men or shouldn't it work for men? Whenever I whenever I bring up some sort of like red pill unflattering truth about women, one of the first reactions that I get from guys is, um, well, men do it too, or women will say the same thing. Oh, oh, men do that too, but they're just as bad, or or they they uh, they do this and it's worse than that. Uh, you know, don't you think? As if that is it's, it's what's it's uh, God's side called this whataboutism, and it's like, well, what about the? It, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about women's nature right now we're not talking about men's nature but that's our natural default is to think that if something exists in a woman then there has to be some sort of co-equal balancing force that happens in a man and the fact is is here's a good one guy uh the double standard thing women will say this all the time they'll say well how come it is that when a woman has sex with a lot of guys that she's a slut but when a guy has sex with a lot of guys and he's a then he's a, a stud or he's he he's rewarded for that. And I go, the reason for that is because men and women are different. Mm -hmm. I agree, men and women are different. The simple the simplest answer to that is men and women are different. And so there's not always an equal and opposite reaction for, no, I for agree. certain things. Just sometimes so, there is. Yeah, sometimes there is. But mo for, I, I would say this is that men and women are different and our differences are more significant than most people want to admit, because if they did, it would challenge a gynocentric social order. That gynocentric social order is heavily dependent on blank slate equalism. If we're all equal, if we all have the equal potential, if we all have equal opportunities, if we're all equal, 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 then we should be able, like, it doesn't matter what, you know, what your gender is. It doesn't matter how you feel about that. As long as you're happy, as long as we're all good, you know, let your freak flag fly sure. kind of thing that we all, as long as we all feel that. And I was going to say is that the, the idea of the equal and opposite reaction is an extension of blank slate equalism. So if it's must be, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? No, it's not because the gander is different from the goose. So here's, so, if blank slate equalism is here, and and you're saying there's the differences are larger than people expect over here. I think Ben and I are saying we land somewhere in, in the middle. And so instead mm -hmm. of talking about like, I'm not a blank slate equalist and I don't think what is good for the goose is good for the gander. But I do think that it's a very useful thing when I see, particularly if I belong to a group of people, whether that's white people, men, uh, people from my state. And I think that the other is doing something that is disadvantaging me. A really useful tool in my life has been hold on, let me pause and see if I have at least an analogous thing. And that was my question about the two prongs is that well, yeah, I don't talk about pharaohs. Well, sure, that that I don't necessarily think that I'm um, hypergamous by my nature, but I do see a dual strategy in, in my life and in many mm -hmm. people's lives. And I think of uh, the pharaohs and, and the Incan emperors and Chinese emperors who often had the queen and then and then a large group of people that they were they had access mm -hmm. to. And 
that that my I'm not saying that men are hypergamous necessarily, but I'm saying, oh, I do see deception in men. I do see men making virtues out of pragmatic decisions like we talked about with with women. And so I guess part of the disagreement and we don't need to highlight every single one. This has been uh, still constructive is sometimes when you say uh, female nature versus male nature, I'm just going, I, I just see human nature in those. And there are things where I go, no, I agree with you. That's yeah, like men and women, aren't equal men and women are different here. Like there, there's a there's a female nature here, but some of them I go, I think that's human. nature. And I think the one thing that maybe is useful is if you're if you're a young guy and you're encountering these ideas for the first time and someone's telling you women are a certain way, duplicitous mm -hmm. and whatever, and, and uh, you're a young man, you will interpret that in a way that where there's anger or resentment. And you see that maybe not in how you feel, but in the feelings of people who might find this stuff. And if it is the case that it's true, if it's not true, you have to say what's true. But if it is the case that it's true, that some things are more actually just human nature, that people in power will take advantage of that power, that people like to play outside of their league. I think when someone hears the idea in that way, what you can get is the same benefit of understanding where you are in the hierarchy, where you are in the totem pole, why your dating life hasn't been what you wanted, why you don't have a Disney movie relationship. You can move forward from there and improve your life, but without the anger and the resentment, because it's not right. that women are a certain thing that men aren't. It's just that yeah. people are a certain thing in the mm -hmm. areas when that's true. I, and, and I would agree with that. And, and here's a here's here's where we're going to find some common ground, because I have certainly in the last two years, once sort of this rise of this doom pill, black pill kind of nihilism has, has kind of come into its own. I've had to do a pushback against that. Mm. And it's been really tough for me to do that because a lot of what I like, a lot of the realities and a lot of the, even just asking the questions about certain things, like, don't you think, you know, think about this. What if this is actually true? Then people will take that in the run with that. Or it could be something where I go, okay, well, women are hyper Pergamous women have, you know, uh, men and women have differing concepts of love or di double standards or uh, different concepts of respect. I go into the kinds of things or, or the soulmate myth or whatever, you know, spending plates and you know, on dating not exclusively. If I get into those topics um, and you're in a state of mind where it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm never going to deal with women again. Or you, you can you can look at it that way. Or you can look at it in terms of, yeah, I'm going to use that so I can live a better life. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's what I've been doing wrong. Most of the guys that I've dealt with over the 20 years, well, close to 20 years that I've been doing this, the, when, when it comes to anger, when it comes to like, you know, frustration with these guys, it's not anger directed at women. It's anger directed at themselves mm -hmm. because they go, damn it. I knew this stuff was true. I just never had anybody to, to tell me or to articulate it for me or to let me know what, what this is about. One of the reasons I wrote the second book, uh, Preventive Medicine, is because I had so many guys going, Roll, I wish I would have had your book before I decided to have kids, before mm -hmm. I got married, before I got into this de you know, dead bedroom marriage or before I, I moved to this state or I took this job or whatever, because if I would have known that, I would have made different decisions. So I wrote that because I wanted to give guys a timeline as mm -hmm. to what they can expect from women, generally speaking. But the the impetus, the, the reason for that is because the guys, when it comes to anger, I used to get, I used to, I still do occasionally, but back in like uh, 2014, 2015, I always had the guys from RSD would go, yeah, Rolo, he's, he's truthful. He tells the truth. He knows exactly. He's, he's got his shit together. He knows what he's talking about, but it's truthful anger. I'm like, no, it's not anger. 
it's how these guys are responding to that. It's not, I'm just giving you tools. Mm-hmm. Like you're asking me about like prescriptions earlier and, and you know, how can we go forward and what can we do with this or what's, what's the ultimate goal? My, my ultimate goal was to simply give guys tools mm-hmm. so they can build a better life for themselves to unplug from the way they've been conditioned and the, what they've thought about their old order thinking and their, you know, the old social contract because they're in a new order right now and the rules have changed. And if you're playing by the old rules, you're either going to get exploited by that or you're going to end up living in such a way that if someone around you is not living the same same way you are, you're going to get very frustrated with them because you think they're, st- they're still playing by that set of rules where you have this other book of rules right here mm-hmm. that you think everybody else should play by. Mm-hmm. So when I give guys advice, I don't, even, I don't really give advice so much. I just point these things out, right? I just work here, man. I just, you know, I, I hold up a mirror and you have to want to look in that mirror. And so I get this all the time. Guys will say, well, the, the red pill is an ideology. No, it's not an ideology. It's a set of tools. It's the Chilton manual for intersexual dynamics. It's like, how does, how does the car run? What, what parts do I need? How do I put these things together? How you go and use that is really kind of up to the individual at that point. Mm-hmm. But I have to push back against that. For me, for Rolo Tomasi to say, I, I, I firmly believe this, that men and women are better together than we are apart. We are compl- we are natural, evolved, if you want to say created, whatever, you uh, evolve complements to one another. I can show you the brain scans. I can show you how in our ancestral past, if men were protectors and providers and they were strong, the things that make them arousing to women were the same things that also had outside benefits like protection. I can kill somebody. I can kill a bear. Uh, you know, I can provide for you. I'm parentally invested, that kind of stuff. Those blue pill kind of the things we think of as blue pill providership kind of things were only associated with a guy who had his shit together and could, and was a badass and was still arousing kind of thing. We've separated those two since that time, but the attraction and the arousal cues are still part of our hardware so far, part of our firmware. So when, when we talk about like, are we better together? Are we better apart in an era where MGTOWs and, 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 you know, men's rights or whatever say, well, we we're no more marriage, screw marriage. We're never going to get together again. And I'm, I'm anti-marriage right now being married for 24 years. I'm not anti-marriage as an institution. I'm anti-marriage is the way we do it now. I think we're at three hours, but <laughs> yeah. I want to yeah, say, sorry. Even, no, no, let's, even though there were disagreements, I didn't feel like this was contentious. I thought it was super fun. The ability to have conversations that are calm and thoughtful with people that you agree and disagree with is very important. Mm-hmm. And so from that perspective, I think this was great. I think people are going to get a lot from it, uh, regardless of which one of us they agree with. And I'm sure there'll be people sure. on all sides. So, uh, mm-hmm. no, yeah, thanks for coming on. Seriously. Yeah, and if anytime. you guys are interested, therationalmail.com. He's got, Rilo's mm-hmm. got a blog. He's got three books on Amazon that are around the Rational Mail, and they all have different subheadings. So if you want to check mm-hmm. any of the ideas out, that is where you can find them. Any other places? And I know you have a YouTube channel as well. Uh, I have a YouTube channel that I'm on uh, Sundays and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific. And uh, I have a fourth bo- upcoming fourth book that is uh, Explorers of Red Pill Topics and Religion uh, should be out by the end of this month. So Awesome. All right. So that's the conversation. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. We had him on because of requests. Like I said in the or like Charlie said in the intro, we don't agree with everything that he said. We tried to disagree where we did, but sometimes a lot of things get jammed into one and you can only say so much. But I hope it was interesting. Let us know in the comments if you liked it and you want to see more people like this. And thank you to all of the patrons that made this possible. Justin is the one that found Rolo. Thank you, Justin. And you guys 100% pay for Justin. So we appreciate it. (laughs) Take care.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.